0: Begin our scripture reading. Our first scripture reading, our Old Testament scripture reading comes from Genesis 44. This is the Joseph story. I'll read verses 18 through 34. Then Judah stepped then Judah stepped up to him and said, "Oh my lord, let your servant please speak a word in my lord's ears, and do not be angry with your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself." My lord asked his servant saying, "Have you a father or a brother?" And we said to my lord, "We have a father and an old man and a younger brother." The child of his old age. His brother is dead. He alone is left of his mother's children. And his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me so that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. For if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servant, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. When we went back to uh, your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when her father said, go again and buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. Only if her youngest brother goes with us will we go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I've never seen him since. If you take this one also with me, and harm comes to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and sharo to Sheol. Now therefore... When I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in in, in the boy's life, when he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. When your servant will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became surety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I will bear the blame in the sight of my father all my life. Now therefore, please... Let your servant remain as a slave to my Lord in place of the boy and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the suffering that would come upon my father. Our New Testament reading is from Mark chapter 10. This is uh, 35 through uh, 45. James and John, the son of 70, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Appoint us to set one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, We are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to appoint, But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus calls them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers, lord it over them. And their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. Instead, Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be a slave to all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. In our uh, scripture text today, our sermon text comes from Exodus 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt when Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of people born to Jacob was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers in that whole generation. But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king rose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase. In the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they sent taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built store cities, Pithom and Ramses, for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites." The Egyptians subjected the Israelites to hard servitude and made their lives bitter with hard servitude in mortar and brick and every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks they imposed upon them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom named was Shifra, and the other Puah, When you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and sit them on their birth stools, if it is a son, kill him, and if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, and they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. for They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew strong. And because the the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to all the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile but you shall let every daughter live. So, we are continuing our sermon series from the book of Exodus. This is now week four, and as you probably noticed, we're still in chapter one. Uh, But just to recap a little bit about where we've been, we've been kind of looking at Exodus, and we've been particularly uh, centering on this theme about power. Uh, We've started with looking at God's uh, plan uh, for humanity and how he uses his power to bring abundance and blessing into the world. And then we looked at Pharaoh and how Pharaoh uses his power, uh, despite the fact the abundance of blessing that is around him, uh, he acts out of fear. And so he exercises his, powerful, his power in horrific ways to uh, kill the Israelites. And then last week we looked at a series of episodes in which uh, various women act creatively and effectively using their power to thwart Pharaoh's plans. In the work of these uh, women, we saw a demonstration of how God intends for power to be projected into the world to bring about abundance and blessing. And this week, I want to look at something different, something that I've kind of neglected, but I think it's pretty important. Uh, How the Israelites ended up enslaved in Egypt is the first place. Because one of the things that's uh, interesting is that as we read Exodus, it's really easy for us to look at the Israelites and just uh, see them as victims, uh, you know, sufferers of oppression, and just stop there. However, there are hints in this text that the story may be a bit more complicated than that. And understanding this point actually is going to lead to something really important that I want to talk about, about how God works in the world, and a challenge to us about how we should work in the world. So... If we turn to our sermon text in Exodus, we see that it begins with this genealogy, uh, this genealogy of the family that first came to Egypt, that's eventually going to multiply, grow, strike fear into Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh is going to enslave them, and then even systematically work to kill them. Um, The genealogy given to us is not extensive. It's basically uh, this one guy, Jacob, and his 12 sons. Now, of course, once we read this genealogy, now we know if we're going to interpret, if we're going to understand the message of Exodus, there's one really key point we have to keep in mind. Caden, what's that key point we need to keep in mind when we interpret to Exodus? Uh, you, have to, you have to interpret. Well, I have to understand Genesis. We have to understand Genesis. That's very right. You have spoken wisely. So what do we know about Jacob and his 12 sons, this family from the book of Genesis? Because as Caden told us, If we want to understand Genesis, or Exodus, we got to understand Genesis. So what do we know? Well, from Genesis, this is what we know. Jacob is the father of these 12 sons. And Jacob is significant because he's the grandson of Abraham. As we discussed in our sermon a few weeks ago, Abraham was the one that was specifically called out by God to be blessed so that his family could be a blessing to the entire world. Uh, In the storyline of Genesis, Abraham's role is to be the answer to the violence and oppression that has characterized the human project since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, continuing through Cain and Babel, all the things that we've been talking about when we talked about the city the last few weeks. Now, Jacob is Abraham's grandson and the heir to this plan. Uh, What that means is that these 12 sons are also uh, significant to this story. Uh, So that's great. That's nice, neat. Okay, whatever. But if we read the story of Genesis, if we read about these 12 sons, if we read about Jacob, we find out that this nice, neat story that sounds great is really very far from this case. Uh, Jacob's family is, like, super complicated. It was, uh, wracked by infighting, by favoritism, by jealousy. His family is a lot more like, uh, 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 the Roy family in succession than it is like the Waltons. So, I don't know if the Venn diagram of people who know those two shows is very big, but anyway, um, Not only were Jacob's uh, children, uh, 12 children, born from uh, two different mothers who were sisters and rivals, but they were also, some of these children were born from the servants of the two rival sisters who were using these servants as uh, proxies in a battle with one another. Uh, So I can't even imagine what their family dinners must have been like, no matter how bad your Thanksgiving dinner is with the politics, I can't even imagine what this was like. Um, 12 children, four different mothers, And they're all rivals and hate each other. And then Jacob, the father, has a favorite wife. Okay, so even, you know, not only is it four different moms and all these different children, he has one wife that he likes way more than everything else, than everybody else. And of course, the two kids from that one wife are his favorite. So this is like family rivalry turned up to 11. I mean, this is like Jerry Springer level kind of stuff. So... At the center of this big uh, dysfunctional mess of a family is this guy, Joseph. Uh, Joseph's the oldest son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. And he's also the second youngest son of the children. And to make matters worse, Joseph is kind of like an obnoxious jerk of a younger brother. So no matter how terrible your younger brother is, uh, Joseph was probably much, much more annoying. Uh, First, Jacob loved Joseph the best by far. Uh, Jacob loved him so much that he made an awesome coat for Joseph. It was uh, red and green and yellow and brown. Oh, I was waiting for the uh, Sutton girls to be here to get that Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor coat reference. But anyway, uh, apparently uh, coats were a really big deal in the ancient world. It wasn't just an item of clothing, but it was a symbol of status and authority. So there's that. And then Joseph also starts having these dreams. And in these dreams... Uh, he, his, the rest of his family, including his father and mother, bowed down to him. And Joseph decides that, you know, what's a cool idea is, like, let me tell all my family about these dreams. So word of advice, if you have dreams like this, keep them to yourself. Because nothing will, uh, good will come out of sharing these to your older siblings. So, so let's see, Gabe and Ethan and Blake, uh, pay attention to that. Uh, anyway, nothing good came to Joseph. Uh, Once Joseph's brothers had the opportunity, they make plans to kill Joseph. The brothers capture Joseph and they throw him into a pit. And they probably would have killed him, except one of Joseph's brothers named Judah uh, decides that it's kind of a waste just to kill Joseph. It would be better if we sold him for some money into slavery. That way we get rid of him and we get paid at the same time. And so the older brothers say, that's a great plan, Judah. Let's do that. And so there just happens to be an Ishmaelite caravan coming through on his way to Egypt. And so they sell Joseph into slavery. Uh, Joseph uh, becomes a slave of an Egyptian military officer named Potiphar. However, Potiphar actually realizes Joseph's pretty smart and has a lot of potential. And so he puts Joseph in charge of his whole estate, which is great until Potiphar's wife, falsely accuses Joseph of attempted rape, and Joseph is sent to prison. Now, you would think imprisonment would mean it's all over for Joseph. But even in prison, Joseph's talents are noticed, and Joseph rises to a position of some authority in the prison. Eventually, Joseph's skills will be recommended to the pharaoh, and Joseph foresees a disaster, a famine that's coming to Egypt. And so he develops a plan to guide Egypt through this disaster. Pharaoh recognizes Joseph's brilliance, he elevates Joseph to second-in-command of Egypt uh, to implement this plan, and then he, uh, Joseph goes on to eventually reconcile with his family, marry, have children, live a long life, and be buried back in Israel. So it's kind of a great story. Okay. We love this story. It's got all these ups and downs. It's got vindication, you know, it's the brilliant of Joseph. It's all set in this exotic Egyptian background. So, you know, it's no wonder that this story gets retold over and over again. You know, Andrew Lloyd Webber makes a musical out of it. We love telling this story to her children. It's great. And, you know, amazing. It seems like kind of, it's kind of unambiguous. It's Joseph's the hero. You know, he overcomes all these obstacles and he's victorious. He's the kind of story we love, right but it's not quite the case. I mean the Bible's rarely so straightforward when you look into it so if you remember the part how Joseph saves Egypt from this severe and prolonged famine, the way Joseph does this is he does it by storing grain in anticipation of the famine uh, of the famine now that's the part we tell our children we're like, oh Joseph's really smart he stores grain and then like hey, everything's good. The problem is uh, Joseph does a little bit more than that. And this is the part we usually don't talk about it, okay? So here's the part we skip over. Because it makes Joseph look like a bad guy. So first, uh, people get hungry, and so Joseph sells them grain. As the famine progresses, the people run out of money for the grain, and so Joseph trades them grain for their livestock. And then the famine keeps going, and they run out of livestock. So Joseph trades them grain for their land. And then Joseph puts a tax on the land, 20%. uh, So everything they produce now, because he owns their land, they have to give to, to Pharaoh. So in the end, what Joseph does because of this famine is he has basically enslaved all the people of Israel. I mean, we call it in serfdom or, you know, serfdom is really the technical term. But basically they're entirely dependent on the state of Egypt. All that they owned is now owned by the pharaoh. And they didn't starve, so that's good, but it came at the complete uh, loss of their freedom. And so Joseph's actions here are not those of a selfless hero. This is more like mafia boss kind of behavior, okay? (laughs) So you got some nice life stuff there. Um, Now, there's kind of an intentional irony here in this story. So, so kind of think about it because the Bible loves this kind of stuff, okay? we We kind of skip over it, but you know, if you kind of are like a literary person, this sort of makes sense. So Joseph is an Israelite child who's sold into slavery to Egypt, and now he's literally he's literally selling Egyptians into slavery, okay? And so this fits well with uh, you know, Joseph's whole story of ups and downs that have pretty much characterized his entire life. You know, One minute in the story, Joseph is the favorite child. The next, Joseph's brothers are selling him into slavery. One minute, Joseph's the head of Potiphar's household. And the next, Joseph's in prison. So when we come to Exodus and we read this genealogy, what we find is that Joseph's cycle of ups and downs has turned again. And the text is alerting us to that point. A new pharaoh who does not know Joseph is in charge. So once again, now the Egyptians who were enslaved by Joseph... And now the family of Joseph is being enslaved by the Egyptians. So we have another up and down here, another turn of the cycle. So, you know, uh, what's going on in Genesis and Exodus here, as we see, is, you know, uh, it, it, as the song says, sometimes you're the windshield, sometimes you're the bug. So, uh, you know, as the dude would say, strikes and gutters. Now, there, there are also hints all throughout this text that the family of Joseph uh, may be paying uh, for past sins. Okay, so their their slavery by the Egyptians is not they're not innocent victims. This may be part of uh, of a uh, kind of a, uh, a paying for past sins. Now, uh, you know, for one, um, you know, we don't see the Bible actually condemn Joseph's actions for the Egyptians. So, you know, when he's like buying their land and their livestock and, and enslaving them, the Bible never says that like Joseph's doing anything wrong. But in fact. What we read later in the Bible in the laws is uh, there are actually laws in Deuteronomy that uh, warn the Israelites that you, you're not supposed to do this. When people hit hard times and they get into debt, you cannot permanently enslave them. That, that is absolutely forbidden. Now, the point I'm making here is that if we, as Caden suggested, read Exodus in conjunction with Genesis... Uh, This story continues with this cycle. I want you to see the cycle. The oppressed becoming the oppressor, and now the oppressed again. That's what's kind of happening here. And there are several hints that the scripture does not view the Israelites as, as victims without fault. So first, Abraham, okay, so we're going back to Abraham, we're going back to Genesis again, has a dispute with his wife. And he forces his Egyptian servant, Hagar, out into the wilderness to die. So Abraham has this Egyptian servant. He sends her out into the wilderness to die. Okay. Uh, Hagar's son by Abraham is named Ishmael. Uh, now, where have we heard that name? So when Joseph is sold into slavery, he's sold into slavery to an Ishmaelite caravan. So those are the descendants of Ishmael. Uh, now, all of this is a result of this uh, jealousy and sibling rivalry that has characterized Joseph's family since the start. Now, I know at this point, what you're waiting for is a word study because we haven't had a word study yet. I mean, we had like eight last week, but here's your word study right now. Uh, look at Pharaoh's order at the very end of this chapter. Okay, so verse, or chapter 122. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So, so what I want to do is focus on that word throw. Now, uh, the Hebrew word for that word throw is salak. It's salak in Hebrew. And, and throw is like a perfectly good translation. So sometimes we look at a word and we're like, oh, that's not a great way to uh, translate it. But that, that actually is a great way to translate it. Throw or, or cast. Okay. Um, And it's actually a pretty rare word. It doesn't come up that often, Uh, but it's used twice in Genesis. You wanna know which two places it's used in Genesis? Because it might be important. Canaan thinks it's important because Canaan thinks we ought to read everything in Exodus in light of Genesis. So let me tell you the two places where the word salat comes up. First, it's in the story about Hagar and Ishmael. So when Abraham kicked out his Egyptian servant Hagar along with their son Ishmael, they're running out of water because they're in the desert and they think they're going to die and Hagar cannot bear to watch her son suffer and die so it says she throws him into some bushes to hide him. So there's that word Salak, throw. And so, you know, Egyptian. Okay, the second time Salak occurs is in the Joseph story. So Joseph's brothers capture him and they throw him into a pit. So there's that word again. So... Pharaoh is repeating this odd word with both an Egyptian and a Joseph connection. And it's all connected to, you know, this family rivalry and violence and abuse within Abraham and Jacob and Joseph's family. And so there's a significance here. The significance of using that word is what is what the text wants us to see that Pharaoh is actually acting in a very similar manner that, that has come before in the Israelites' family history. And so the take-home message here is, look, it's easy to make Pharaoh a bad guy. He's a bad guy. No No one's arguing that. And Pharaoh certainly is a bad guy. But Pharaoh is also repeating a pattern that the Israelites have been acting out for like hundreds of years, like the whole story of Genesis. It's a cycle that has ups and downs. We've seen it played out all through Joseph's life and in Joseph's family. And it just so happens that this time, Pharaoh is up, And the Israelites are down. In a way, Pharaoh is just the next in a series of oppressions and violence that begins with Abraham's family. Abraham oppresses his Egyptian slave woman. Joseph's brothers attempt to kill Joseph and force Joseph into Egyptian slavery. Joseph enslaves the Egyptians. And now Pharaoh enslaves the descendants of Joseph's brothers and tries to kill them. Just one more in that series. And, and so if we think about that from like this grand idea of series, what we've got here is we don't have good guys and bad guys like we want to make it out to be. I'm going to take this quote. This is one of my favorite quotes. This is uh, from a, a, a Soviet dissident named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Uh, you may have read uh, uh, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich one time when you were in high school. But he's got a great quote that sums up the problem that Exodus is trying to get at here. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were only necessary to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. That's what Exodus is trying to show us here. We see that the line dividing good and evil is cutting through the Egyptian family, and the pharaoh as well as abraham's family so that leads us to a problem here what's to be done what's the solution to this does this cycle of oppression and oppression continue back and forth through history with nothing changing but the names and faces is it just a matter of our team yay let's go team joseph being on top but what if our team isn't so great i mean There's really nothing that tells us that Jacob's family and Joseph is really like this much better than Pharaoh, right? I mean, really? And I mean, I don't like team Pharaoh, but team Jacob doesn't seem that much better. Will Joseph's family just do the same thing as Pharaoh if he comes out on top? Well, thankfully, the Joseph story also leads us to a solution. And it comes from a really unlikely place. Joseph's older brother, Judah. Now, he was one of these 12 names mentioned here. Uh, uh, and, and, and the reason it's unlikely, the reason this is an unlikely place is because Judah does not come off that great in the Joseph story. First, Judah is the fourth oldest brother from uh, the wife. His father, Jacob, really didn't like that much. Uh, so he doesn't even, you know, really have that much uh, prospect. Uh Second, uh, the first story we have about Judah is Judah coming up with the bright idea of profiting off his brother Joseph by selling him into slavery. Remember, he's the one that came up with making money off of this, right? And third, we get a whole chapter in Genesis about this incident with Judah involving his daughter-in-law Tamar. Now, unfortunately, this story about Judah and Tamar is like too long for us to get into. My sermons already go too long. But it's a great story. It's got lots of cool, salacious details. And if you don't read it, you absolutely should. But it's really Jerry Springer stuff again. Uh, So crazy dynamics. But the take-home message of this story is that Judah looks like a really, really big jerk. He's terrible. Um, But... The Joseph story contains one more story about Judah. And it's a story that was in our reading from Genesis today. And so it involves Benjamin, uh, who's the uh, other child of Joseph's mother, Rachel, who's the mother that, like, Jacob really loved. And Benjamin is the youngest. And based on everything we've been learned to expect from uh, Genesis, Benjamin looks like he's going to be the chosen son. Okay? He's the favorite son of Jacob. He was born miraculously despite his mother's infertility. You know, Genesis is kind of big on that. And also, uh, you know, Genesis is always elevating the younger son over the oldest. So we kind of think like Benjamin's going to be the one, like he's the big one. But in the end, what we find out in Genesis is that it's Judah who ends up being elevated. Judah is the son who the kingly line of of David originates from. Uh, He's going to be the one that Jesus comes from, the Messiah, you know, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So the question is, why is that? Okay, if Judah's such a jerk, and and like he totally is, why is he doing this? Well, turns out Genesis has been setting this up all along because it's a surprise. It's such a surprise, it breaks all our expectations because the reason for Judah's elevation... The reason that Judah actually comes out on top, despite being a jerk, is like super important. It's kind of the whole point of the sermon. So we've got to pay attention here. So if we look at our reading from Genesis, we find it centers around Judah and his younger brother, Benjamin. And remember, Judah's a jerk. He's got the unloved mother. And Benjamin is the uh, kind of favored child. Now, in our story, Benjamin is in trouble. Because as a test of his brothers, Joseph has planted some valuable treasure in Benjamin's belonging. And so ben- Benjamin's going to be charged as a thief, and he's going to be in prison. So that's bad. Now, Judah knows his father's love for Benjamin, and how heartbroken his father would be if Benjamin were taking prisoner. And so what Judah does in this story, the story we read, is he offers to take his brother's place uh, in prison. <laughs> And so it's Judah's selfless act of love for his father. Not only does it save Benjamin, but it also proves to Joseph that his family has changed. Judah's act here, Judah's selfless act of self-giving, of uh, self-sacrifice, actually brings an end to the hostility between Joseph and his brothers. The rest of the story of Joseph is a story of a family that has now been healed. Judah has repaired what is broken. This cycle of mistrust, of scheming, of backstabbing, of rivalry and deceit that has characterized Abraham's family for most of the book of Genesis has been broken by Judah. So it's here that in Judah, the ancestor of Christ shows us the way forward. Judah shows that in a family trapped in this cycle, there's only one way out. And, and you know, so far our sermon series has all been focused on this question of power. I didn't even know I was going to do this until I started working on this series. This, this issue of power has really been like super, Has really emerged as a super important theme. And the, the thing about power is it's not in and of itself evil. Power is necessary. Humans were given power and authority in the world to work God's purpose for creation. Remember, what's that purpose? To bring abundance and life into the world. And the problem with the power is that we often abuse it. And we use that power to exploit creation. And we use violence to impress others. That's just what we do. Jesus, though, the descendant of Judah, shows us a better way. It's a way that has been anticipated by Judah in his self-sacrifice for the other. And it leads to healing. Look at our passage in Mark. I love this passage. I think this is like the most beautiful description about power in the kingdom of God. John and James want a position of authority that will come when Jesus the Messiah begins to rule, okay? And the problem is, and and, and the problem with this desire is that they're still stuck in this cycle that we've been talking about. They see Jesus' kingship as just another uh, regime change, but this time with them on top, okay? And Jesus shoots it down. He's he's gonna have none of it. Uh, Jesus is saying this cycle is done. We're not just, uh, you know, team Joseph, team Egypt. You know, this isn't just going to be team Jesus coming in on top. This is going to become something completely different. This isn't just a regime change anymore. Uh, uh, Jesus says it's not another turn of a wheel. Something different is going to happen. As Jesus says to Pilate, my kingdom is not like this of the world. Because Jesus' kingdom is not one based on authoritarian rule like that of Pharaoh or Joseph or Caesar. Jesus' kingship is instead based on what does he say to uh, the disciples? It's based on service. Jesus' kingship is one based on self-sacrifice for others where Jesus' own life is given for the many. And that's what power looks like in Jesus' kingdom. And that's why it's so important to grasp that concept because this is the only way power will work that can end this cycle of violence and oppression. The only way it can work that can lead to healing and bring the abundance and flourishing and fertility and life that God has wanted for the world. It's the kind of power that Judah had demonstrated earlier. Something new is broken into the world that Judah was just the beginning of. As we will see in the coming weeks, Exodus is not simply about freeing people from slavery that's not enough this is not just another regime change that happens in exodus ultimately exodus is about the creation of a new people with a new way of acting in the world that challenges and surpasses all of the old systems and that newness is the beauty of what happened on the cross because it's at the cross that this sad cycle of history of humanity is shattered The dark forces of Cain and Pharaoh and Caesar and all the other tyrants of the world come together and do their worst to Jesus. But Jesus' resurrection reveals all their attempts are impotent. And instead, he brings into the world God's new future and new creation in the midst of the history of the world's suffering. And in this new kingdom of Jesus, and this is what is key, it's not that the executioners triumph. They don't triumph over the victims. But however, the key to Jesus' kingdom is neither do the victims then go into to triumph over the executioners. This is a true revolution. It's not just a swapping of positions. It's a new kingdom with a new ethic and a new humanity where we at last see the graciousness and righteousness of God revealed. This is a kingdom where the cycle has been broken and not through a power characterized by more violence, but by service and self-sacrifice. And that is how we as Christ followers, have got to project our power into the world. Always, always, always looking for service to others so that we can bring real life and flourishing and not just be a part of the same cycle that's been going on throughout history. Amen.